Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. The birds have been falling for 240 days. It's laughable now, but when they first started to fall, we were all pretty awed and excited. It's not every day that you get to experience a miracle, and once it was clear that it wasn't just one sick flock that had dropped from the sky, the town was beside themselves with wonder. The bird shower was also more of a sprinkle than a downpour, and so it seemed relatively manageable as far as unprecedented and unexplainable natural phenomena are concerned. I mean, it's unpleasant and sort of dangerous to have thousands of birds of all sizes raining down on your town day and night, but it's also awe-inspiring and incredible. At first, anyway. I can't remember who first discovered they were only dropping on our town, But if you walked the perimeter of Layton, Illinois, my birthplace, and the location of the miracle, the birds were only raining on our soil. There was a perfect, precise line of dead birds and gore that ran the entire boundary of the town, and not a single bird had fallen outside of that line. Sure, some had bounced or rolled over after they hit the ground, but every point of contact happened within Layton. Like all Midwestern towns, we have a fleet of plows, and the city did a good job of organizing them quickly to clear the roads and parking lots so our citizens could still live some semblance of normal lives as the avian showers stretched on into hours and then days. Townspeople rallied to help clear each other's lawns and homes, and even set up a system to determine which birds were viable food so that they didn't go to waste. Most of the birds were songbirds, but at least a third were geese and ducks and other edible fowl, and separating them for food was just a thoughtful way to make the best of an unusual situation. The rest were brought to the landfill or burned, and at first it seemed like we'd weather the spectacular incident and come out on the other side a little grossed out, but otherwise unscathed. Some people even started making moves to set up themed shops and cafes in anticipation of the hordes of tourists who would inevitably flock to Leighton to witness the town where the miracle had occurred. Things were definitely messy and weird, but it re-energized us and brought us together, and we were grateful to have been chosen. But after about a week, reports started rolling in that the birds were disappearing from the rest of the country, and then the world, and after that, the mood started to change. Scientists unanimously agreed that for some reason, all of the birds in the world were flocking to Leighton, and once they reached the airspace above our town, they were dying and then falling on us. But no one could figure out why. Turns out that birds are a crucial part of the global ecosystem, so a world without birds is not good. As in, end of the world, not good. So it didn't take long for Leighton to go from a place where a miracle was in progress to 
the town that was summoning an apocalypse, and so, yeah, the mood changed after that. We went from chosen to cursed almost overnight, and it's been a real lesson in how closely panic and stupidity are related. The World Health Organization officially announced that Leighton was a global health and safety threat on a Tuesday night, and by the time we woke up on Wednesday morning, the National Guard had formed an artillery wall around the entire perimeter of the town. At first, we assumed that the WHO had identified some kind of biological or viral threat that was causing the birds to fall, and that the soldiers were there to contain a potential outbreak. But then, our president, in all of his infinite wisdom, called an emergency press conference, and that's when things went from uncomfortable to damn near catastrophic for us. American politicians had been pulling some crazy shit for attention leading up to the bird storm, but the president took that to a whole new level when he walked up to the podium at our nation's capital and announced that Leighton was clearly being punished for some unknown sin and that we were to be contained until that sin could be identified and neutralized. Thank you and have a good day. I'm summarizing, of course, but our lives were uh, more of a mirage after that. A weak rendering of our existence on the horizon fading into our rear view as we grappled with the consequence of one man's words. All the internet and communication was shut off from the outside world to keep us from garnering sympathy from the American public. And so it was up to us to figure out a way to escape our rapidly deteriorating circumstances. We called an emergency town council meeting and had to hold it in the Carlson's Dairy Barn because it was the only structure large enough to accommodate the turnout. Townspeople packed the lower level shoulder to shoulder and the overflow filled the balcony until it threatened to rip loose and crush the anxious mob below. You don't fully understand the importance of a capable city council until they're accountable for an extinction event and my confidence was not at its peak as I surveyed the ragtag group who suddenly held my life and the future of the world in their unmanicured hands. The council consisted of seven members, including the mayor, a precocious 24-year-old nerd named Nathan, who was born and raised in Leighton and won the position by a landslide when he ran unopposed the year before. He had the kind of awkward, saccharine, political attitude that felt as if it had been manufactured by a bot or alien who had only experienced human nature secondhand. His folksy, take-charge approach was enough to inspire violence from even the kindest soul, and the apprehension was palpable as our poor man's Pete Buttigieg clapped his clammy hands and called the first meeting of the end of the world to order. Well, folks, we found ourselves in a bit of a pickle, he squeaked, and hives broke out on the exposed V of his chest and spread quickly up his neck. We gotta get out of here, a deep voice bellowed from the balcony, and the crowd shifted and grumbled in agreement. Okay, folks, Nathan called back, with just enough authority to keep a riot from erupting. I understand we're all nervous, but we need to come together to make a plan if we're going to weather this storm. We're good people, and we can do this together. We just need to maintain decorum and keep level heads. Let's just wait him out, Councilman Gunter proposed first. 
Jeremy Gunter had graduated a year before me and had decided to open an electronics shop in town with the median age of 75. It only stayed open because his uncle was dedicated to breaking his own devices often enough to covertly bankroll his unremarkable nephew. The birds? Councilwoman Lutz asked with the same bewilderment that the rest of us were experiencing. Brenda Lutz was the town's beloved science teacher who had escaped Leighton briefly to attend college, only to be sucked back in by the tractor beam of her vicious mother's codependency after grad school. She'd lived with her overbearing mother until she died six months before at the age of 103, and we all knew she'd hung on as long as she could to torture Councilwoman Lutz. I suspected Lutz was planning to escape Leighton again sooner or later, and would have succeeded if the birds hadn't shown up. Yeah, let's just wait out the birds. They can't fall forever. Councilman Gunter crossed his arms and leaned back with the confidence of a mob boss who had just vanquished a rival family. Councilwoman Lutz opened, then closed, then opened her mouth, and responded with a remarkable amount of restraint, considering the absurdity of Councilman Gunter's suggestion. Okay, let's just say that there are a million birds falling on Leighton every day, which seems like a pretty generous estimate. She looked at Councilman Gunter, who nodded approvingly. She picked up her phone and typed briefly. There are an estimated 50 to 430 billion birds in the world, so if reports are right and that they're all traveling to Leighton to fall in our town, if we wait for every single one of them to drop so the government will end our quarantine... She typed a few calculations into her phone, then held up the screen to Councilman Gunter. We're looking at a minimum of about 140 years before this stops and we're set free. Yeah, but... But... Councilman Gunter trailed off as his own foolishness caught up with him. We're being punished! Councilman Peters broke in with a slam of his fist, and I couldn't help but giggle as we all flinched in unison. Now, Councilman Peters, Nathan raised his small hand toward the man in a laughable attempt to control the 80-year-old who had spent 50 years waking up at 4 a.m. to farm on his land before heading to his full-time job as the superintendent of schools. He retired at the age of 78 and had only done so because his wife had a stroke and needed some full-time care. There was no doubt that he was the patriarch of the community who tolerated our dweeby mayor, but always seemed on the verge of crushing him with one of his massive, wrinkly fists. You heard the president, Councilman Peters continued. We're being punished and we need to figure out why or we will all die. Simple as that. Councilman Peters had a single worthy opponent, and it was Councilwoman Seavers, the middle-aged female gym teacher who kept her liberal leanings as secret as she did her sexuality, but was smart enough and scary enough to keep Peters and the rest of the aging residents from fully dragging our town into the faux-Christian fascist state that had become so fashionable across rural America. What is this? An episode of Saw, she thundered, and the folding tables that had been assembled to serve as a makeshift council chambers threatened to collapse under the weight of her challenge. In that case, I nominate Councilman Peters to be our geriatric jigsaw harbinger of misguided moral lessons. She huffed condescendingly, and the old man shot back. What exactly do puzzles have to do with any of this, Councilwoman Seavers? 
first of all, Saw was a movie franchise, not a series. Councilman Gunter broke in, his face a glowing orb of smugness that the rest of the council ignored completely. Jesus, everyone, you're missing the point, Nathan screamed and slammed his hands down as he stood. And Councilman Peters is right. There's a reason this is happening to us, and if we don't figure it out, we're all going to die. A hush fell over the crowd at Nathan's show of force, and I could practically hear everyone's blue jeans rustling in simultaneous semi-arousal. He lowered his voice to the calculated tone used by politicians and preachers when they know they were winning over the crowd, and continued, And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Fuck, I whispered and kicked myself for forgetting how dangerous men like Nathan could be. I was remiss for underestimating how far someone like him would go to feel in control, even and especially to the detriment of anyone weaker than them. I scanned the room for the least conspicuous exit and silently excused myself. As I descended the back stairs of the hayloft, Councilman Peter's voice wafted over the wholly incited crowd. It's gotta be Dennis, I heard him say solemnly. He's the reason this is happening. As I slipped out the back door and fled to my car, I could just barely hear the unmistakable shriek of a grieving mother as her community betrayed her and condemned her only child with a swift majority vote. Dennis was, of course, the town eccentric. I don't even know if he was gay, but he was definitely flamboyant, and in a town like Leighton, anything even remotely outside of the status quo is considered queer. I remember the absolute horror on the face of my middle school best friend when I unpacked an English muffin at lunch one day. My mother's most bohemian sister had moved to Chicago and brought a bag of them for us to try when she visited one weekend. We'd run out of bread for my school lunch the following week, so my mom innocently substituted an English muffin, not knowing that unfamiliar and exotic foods were the gateway to homosexuality and Satanism in the eyes of most Leighton residents. This was the last time I'd allowed myself to stand out in our tiny town in any way, but Dennis absolutely vibrated with creativity and originality and refused to dim his light to make the rest of us marginally more comfortable. I always imagined he'd escape as soon as he could, but like many only children of single mothers, his love and loyalty anchored him, especially after his mom was diagnosed with MS our senior year. He channeled his creativity into cooking and baking and opened a cafe that Leighton didn't deserve but fully embraced. His flair for design was as impeccable as his skills as a chef, and the cafe quickly became the heart of the community. It was a place to see and be seen, and you could find Dennis charming his eager clientele over breakfast, lunch, and dinner six days a week, as Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline crooned in the background. But, of course, he was the first to go. They tried various forms of religious counseling to start, and when he continued to insist that the only real sin he was guilty of was adding three extra tablespoons of butter to his chocolate volcano cake, 
They slowly turned up the heat until they'd destroyed the extraordinary being that had been foolishly entrusted to the town by an idealistic but misguided god. His mother found him hanging in the basement seven weeks after they'd set their sights on him, but the birds continued to fall. It was around that time we started to get hungry, too. More and more birds that should have been edible were showing up with parasites, and we'd guessed it was because they were traveling from further and further distances to get to Leighton, so people were starting to get sick after consuming them. The government sent rations to keep us from dying in quarantine, but they didn't send enough, or Nathan and his cronies were keeping the lion's share for themselves. My guess is it was the latter, and if it was, it was an effective way to ramp up their campaign. Less than a week later, Councilwoman Seavers, her female roommate of 20 years, two high school students who painted their fingernails, and the 30 people who had voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election had been targeted as the next group of sinners. Along with the religious counseling they had tried with Dennis, they also forced the new group to help clean up, bury, and burn the birds, claiming the labor would help humble their minds and bodies and help purge their wicked souls. Councilwoman Seavers was the first to revolt. She was in the middle of her cleanup shift, shoveling birds in the town square on a particularly hot day, and after a week of psychological torture and hard labor, she just seemed to snap. One minute, she was shoveling the never-ending supply of feathered bodies falling from above, and the next, she was beating the ever-loving shit out of the man tasked with supervising the cleanup crew that day. The man lived, but Councilwoman Seavers was condemned to death, which the townsfolk vehemently supported after the majority of the city council claimed that her sinful actions would likely prolong our quarantine. And rather than arranging a humane end to the woman who had dedicated her life to Leighton and the health of our children, they decided that a good old-fashioned public execution would be more effective. Instead of a hanging on the square or firing squad, they went for something with a little more pageantry. Her execution was scheduled for noon on a Sunday, and the crowd that gathered was even larger than the group that had assembled for the city council meeting in the Carlson's barn. Shelters had been built around the perimeter of the square to protect onlookers from the steady bird showers, and right as the courthouse clock struck twelve, they marched Councilwoman Seavers into the center and handcuffed her to a steel rack bolted to the sidewalk below. As the councilwoman's friends and family openly wept, and the birds rained down on her exposed body, Councilman Peters recited a passage from Matthew. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I didn't stick around to find out how long it took for the councilwoman's body to finally succumb to the crush of the birds, but I heard that she fought like hell, punching and even roundhouse-kicking the feathered bodies as their beaks and talons pummeled her tender skin, and their dead weight slowly battered her flesh and organs. A couple of weeks later, the rest of the group had either taken their own lives, passed away from being overworked and underfed, 
or were sentenced to public execution by Falling Bird. More than half of the members of the group tried to repent their sins through long and tearful public proclamations of any and everything they had ever done that could be considered a transgression in the eyes of God. But when the birds kept falling, they remained in the town's custody until they all eventually perished as well. A couple of days after the last member of the group died, I was getting ready to go to sleep. And when I pulled back my covers to get into bed, there was a piece of paper folded in half and placed in the center of the sheets just below the pillow. My first instinct was that my mom had been feeling sentimental and had left a sweet note for me to find. But when I opened it, I found the typed message. 1150W900N, Wednesday, 1am. I instinctively glanced at my bedroom window, which was permanently open that time of year to let the early spring breeze circulate through my room. It was standard practice for everyone in Leighton to leave all doors and windows unlocked to prove ourselves that it was a safe place to live. But it dawned on me that I should reconsider that tradition in the light of recent circumstances. The next day was Wednesday, and I laid awake for hours, wondering who had left the note and whether the meeting might lead to a way out of the escalating madness, or if it was some kind of trap. By the time I drifted off, I decided that if someone wanted to hurt me, they'd have no problem carrying out their plan in the open, considering the government-sanctioned violence the town had quickly acclimated to, and so I decided to sneak out the next night and find out what the messenger had in store for me. I was scheduled to sort birds for food on Wednesdays, so the day flew by, and before I knew it, my parents were fast asleep, and my clock was announcing that it was time for me to put on my rain gear and ride my bike into the middle of nowhere to reveal the next phase of the strange hell my life had evolved into. As I neared my destination, I noticed an aging farm structure plopped in a field a couple of hundred feet from the road, and assumed that was the rendezvous point, since there wasn't another landmark as far as the eye could see. My pulse quickened, and there were several moments I was tempted to turn back, but some subconscious and very brave part of me seemed to take over, and before I knew it, I had dropped my bike out of sight in a ditch, and was creaking open the crooked door of the shed to reveal three familiar female faces gathered inside. They waved me in and cleared a space on the rickety benches that lined the interior so that I could join them. The group was made up of science teacher turned councilwoman Lutz, Debbie Jansen, who had taken over the farm co-op after her husband suddenly died of a heart attack five years previous, the local librarian, Linda Bridges, Linda was married to a sculptor who had moved to Leighton with her to take care of her parents, and had managed to win over most residents of the small town by offering his welding skills to the various municipal organizations that needed structures built and repaired. There were plenty of old-timers who remained skeptical of the transplant, but they were generally accepted and had made a nice life for themselves over the years. Thank you for coming, Vanessa. Councilwoman Lutz said as soon as I'd sat down. We need to be quick in case someone noticed one of us, but I gathered you all here because I know how to stop this. The rest of us gasped at her claim, and Linda started to clap her hands in excitement, but quickly caught herself and blushed. It's Nathan, Lutz said with so much contempt in her voice. 
I know this because I taught him everything he needed to know to cause this. She waved her hand toward the steady thump of the birds' bodies on the roof above us. No, Linda whispered. Lutz nodded curtly and continued. I always felt so sorry for that awkward little shit. So I started giving him some special attention. I would encourage him to stay after class so I could share various experiments and facts that I thought he'd enjoy. And it seemed to work, she sighed, remembering the time she'd spent mentoring our mayor. He got really into all of it, and before I knew it, he was staying after school once or twice a week for extra tutoring. And it felt good to help him discover something that made him feel better about himself. I knew that an advanced understanding of science wasn't going to protect him from the hicks in this town, but I hoped it would give him the confidence to get out of here to find more people like him after high school. She smirked and hesitated a moment before saying, I always had a fantasy that he'd use what I taught him to become massively rich and he'd marry a supermodel and fly his private jet back to his class reunions, but I think I might have watched Romy and Michelle too many times. Her smile faltered, and she took a deep breath before finishing. <sighs> it took me a while to put it together, but it came to me earlier this month when I woke up feeling particularly depressed about our circumstances and realized I might not ever hear birdsong again, which really sent me spiraling. Well, in the middle of that depressive spiral, I was stuck with a memory of my time with Nathan and how he'd been particularly fascinated by the idea of sonar and sonic communication. At the time, he was fascinated by it because the rafters of his grandfather's barn would fill with bats for a couple of nights each year, and he was determined to find a way to communicate with them since his weird parents refused to give him a pet or sibling to keep him company. Lutz sighed again and gazed up at the repetitive pounding on the roof for a moment. I never followed up to find out if he'd managed to make a flock of bat friends, but it hit me like a ton of bricks that he must have figured it out, and that eventually led to this. She waved her hand toward the sky for a second time, using sonar technology. We all sat in stunned silence for several seconds as we waited for Lutz to provide proof of the wild accusation that our goofy young mayor had masterminded an apocalyptic event. So I started following him and I found the machine in his grandfather's barn where it all began so innocently when he was in high school. That little creep obviously spent every spare moment researching sonar after I gave him a rudimentary lesson because I haven't fully figured out how the thing he built works but I'm positive that it's what's attracting the birds to Leighton. He managed to put out a sonic signal so powerful that it reaches around the globe and has essentially hypnotized all the birds and forced them to follow it here. She looked around the group to make sure we were still following her, and when she felt confident we were, she went on. Once they reach the air above Leighton, they're getting zapped, with electromagnetic radiation and dying, so it's simulating something out of revelations or Greek mythology or something. She crossed her arms and sat back to study our reactions, and I immediately nodded in solidarity. Wow, Linda whispered and shook her head slowly. Are you sure of this? 
Debbie asked. I've never been more sure of anything in my life, Lutz reassured. Luckily, that barn has a loose board in the back, so I've been able to sneak in a handful of times when I'm sure he's not around, and it's very clear to me that he built that machine for this purpose. He hasn't caught you on camera, I asked, and she shook her head. The radiation would interfere with any camera within several hundred feet, and a lot of those systems don't work without internet anyway, so we have that on our side. I also think that he assumes he's already killed anyone who would pose a real threat, so we can use that to our advantage as well. Use that to what advantage? Linda asked wearily. Well, that's why I brought you all here. Lutz leaned forward and her voice took on an extra air of gravity. My guess is that Nathan is going to target women next. And once he's either killed or had us committed to a life of total servitude, he'll turn off the machine. This will prove to the world that we were the problem all along, and then men like him will essentially have infinite power with an excuse to subdue half of the population. Holy shit, I whispered as the enormity of the situation fully hit me. Yeah, so we have to act quick, and I can't do this alone. She scanned our faces for signs of commitment, and we each nodded with varying degrees of solemnity. Great. I could tell she was trying her best to appear confident, but the fear behind her eyes betrayed her. This all has to be done before the end of the weekend, because Sunday is Easter, and I'm very sure they'll take full advantage of the holiday to make the next phase an ever bigger spectacle. Jesus Christ, Debbie whispered, followed by, no pun intended. Lute smiled a bit despite herself and continued. We all need to meet at his grandpa's barn. You know, the massive blue one on 650 West, just outside of town. Let's meet there at 7 a.m. on Sunday. Nathan has been going to Jacoby's for their breakfast special every Sunday before church since he was a teenager. And he's kept the tradition, even though it's been a month since we've gotten any kind of actual food in here. Isn't that cutting it a little close? I asked. If he plans to start rounding us up later that day... Lutz nodded. I thought long and hard about that part, but I think it's the best chance we have to spin this in our favor. If Easter is the day of the resurrection, and it's also the day that the birds stop falling, I think we could make a strong case that Jesus was not down with this shit. Or we could just explain that Nathan's a psychopath genius who engineered this whole thing, Linda offered. Well, that too, Lutz agreed. You know that we'll need a strong religious explanation for those among us in this country who have already deemed this as an act of God and will refuse to accept otherwise. Smart. Linda gave Lutz's arm an approving squeeze, who then reached into her coat and pulled out a sheet of paper for each of us. There was a rough sketch of a large machine on each, and our names had been written next to an X at various points around the device. Luckily, it's pretty straightforward. Lutz tapped at the four X's on the paper in front of her. He designed the machine so that you can't turn it off unless four levers are pulled simultaneously, and so it can only be disabled if four people are present. Memorize this sketch so that we can be as quiet as possible on Sunday. And once we're there and in place, I'll count down from three, and, well, that's it. I couldn't help but shudder with simultaneous fear and relief, and I wasn't about to question the plan because I didn't have any choice. But I really hoped Lutz was right. 
I'm so glad we still have each other. Linda welled up slightly as she quietly acknowledged the rest of us. Yeah, how did you know you'd be able to trust us? Debbie asked. Lutz smiled weakly and said, Well, you slipped up that night we had too much wine at the Chamber of Commerce party and admitted that you loved the movie Moonlight. Debbie clutched her heart and exhaled deeply. It's such a beautiful movie. Lutz turned to Linda. Linda's obvious because she's married to the town hippie, which made Linda giggle quietly and shrug in agreement. And Vanessa left for Chicago first chance she got. She smiled warmly, and I felt an enormous pang of longing for home. Oh my god, Vanessa, why are you even here? Debbie whispered urgently. It never dawned on me that you're not supposed to be in Leighton. You moved to Chicago ages ago. I nodded and swallowed back the lump in my throat before explaining, Well, I came home for the weekend to pick up some end tables that Mom wanted to give away. I paused and reflected on the absurdity of the series of events that had trapped me in a dystopian hellscape, and the day I got here was the day the bird started. One of them destroyed my radiator because my dad had been topping up all my fluids earlier in the day, but got distracted and left the hood up. I sighed heavily and my voice grew involuntarily louder as I finished my terrible story. And they had to order the part, but it was delayed because the birds, and my dad couldn't bring me home because my mom was still recovering from her gallbladder surgery, and so by the time it was scheduled to arrive, the town was already closed. Sorry, I whispered, and wiped away the tear that snuck out as I spoke. I haven't really had anyone to process that with. (laughs) Feels good to get it out. Linda wrapped an arm around my shoulder protectively and said, You're going to go home soon, kid. We'll make sure of it. The other women chimed in in agreement. And it feels silly to say, but it did make me feel better. The following two days were excruciatingly slow, and I was convinced that someone would catch on to our plan at any moment and haul us into the center of the town for execution. But the minutes continued to pass without incident. And before I knew it, I was pedaling toward Nathan's grandparents' barn at the break of dawn on Sunday morning. I waited until I knew that the first wave of churchgoers were already safely sealed at the Easter sunrise service, then rode like my life depended on it, because it quite literally did, and so I made it to the barn in record time. I hid my bike in a stand of trees about a quarter of a mile from the barn, then used them as cover as I snuck toward the property. A neighbor's dog sensed my presence at one point because he let out a handful of protective barks. But when no one emerged from the house, I sprinted the rest of the distance and quickly located the loose board that Lutz had instructed us to enter through. The other women were already inside, positioned to one side of a massive steel contraption that filled half the room, and I could see the relief on each of their faces as they registered that we had all shown up to help save the world. Everyone looked to Lutz, who checked her watch, and gave us a thumbs up. Our eyes darted between each other's faces, and we shared unspoken messages of strength before Linda opened her arms to suggest a group hug that the rest of us reciprocated. A couple seconds of silent reassurance. Lutz pulled back and nodded resolutely. It was time. 
she pointed to each of us, then in the direction of the lever we were assigned to pull. So we scattered to position ourselves around the enormous machine, and I could only see Debbie from my vantage point. I took several deep breaths and dragged my sweaty hands across my jeans before I wrapped them firmly around the large lever in front of me. I continued to take slow breaths as I waited for the sign, and just a couple of seconds later, Lutz's voice echoed through the cavernous space. Three, two, one. I gripped the lever and pulled with all my might. To my enormous relief, it slid out of its position with relative ease and slammed into the opposite end of the opening with a loud clang of metal. I heard four identical clangs reverberate from each side of the machine, and we all held our breaths and stood completely still as we waited for something to happen. After a couple beats, I saw Debbie move toward the front of the barn, and so followed her to find the other two. We all remained silent, listening. I can't begin to describe the enormity of my relief when the sounds of the birds hitting the roof above us gradually started to slow. It was an almost imperceptible shift at first, but after enduring the sound for months, it was immediately obvious that something was happening. Two minutes later, we were jumping up and down and hugging each other with glee as the hammering of the bodies had slowed to an intermittent trickle, and we knew it would just be a matter of time before they stopped falling completely. Lutz quickly broke us out of our reverie to remind us that Nathan would have noticed that the shower was ending and could be there any minute, so we needed to get out of there. My heart raced as we crossed the room to leave through the loose board. And just as Lutz had pulled it back and was about to duck through, there was an ear-splitting screech of metal, and we turned to see the barn's front door rolling open. What have you done? Nathan screamed in his trademark voice as he charged towards us with breathtaking speed. Oh my God! What have you done? He only acknowledged our presence for half a second before spinning to assess the machine. His hands reached for his head. And he grasped the clumps of hair on either side while he maniacally raced back and forth along the length of the machine. You're fucked, kid," Lutz said stoically and crossed her arms, clearly enjoying watching Nathan lose. He whirled in her direction, and within seconds, his wide eyes and panting face were just centimeters away from hers. She stood firm. As he spat out the next sentence with so much venom, it almost physically stung. You have no idea what you've done. He backed up so he could scrutinize all of us for a moment, then ran to the machine to try to push the nearest lever back to place. When it didn't budge, he turned to us again and screamed, "I was slowing it down." He smashed his face into his palms in absolute frustration, and then raised his head to continue. This is so much bigger than anything you could ever. He trailed off for a second, but I figured out how to slow it down. I glanced at Lutz, who cleared her throat, and I could see her resolve starting to falter as her eyes shimmered with fear. I slowed it down so we'd have time to figure it out, but but now, now there's nothing to protect us. Its words cut off, and his body stiffened. He turned his head to listen to something and threw up a hand to silence Lutz when she tried to speak. Shh! He insisted, and took a couple of small steps toward the entrance to hear better. 
After a couple seconds, his eyes squeezed shut painfully as he seemed to confirm what he was hearing. His shoulders slumped with resignation, and he turned to look at us with what I can only describe as insanity consuming his features. As his eyes locked with mine, I could suddenly hear it too. There was a monumental rumbling in the distance, followed by a weighty crack, and then a chorus of inhumane wailing that grew to fill the gigantic room. The ground started to rumble, and a moment later, the side of the barn split in half as easily as a piece of torn paper, and a chunk of the roof caved in, and a mass of bird bodies tumbled down with it. Through the fresh opening, I could see dark and angry clouds in the distance, and they almost looked as if they were galloping towards us. As the wailing intensified, and just before it deafened us completely, I could just barely hear Nathan say to himself, he didn't deserve to be saved anyway. This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Lindsay Hubner. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and how we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media production. Quack. Quack.